1: From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For food writer Alicia Kennedy, the popularity and availability of vegan and vegetarian food options and the greater awareness of their potential for reducing meat consumption and helping the planet are all cause for celebration. But there are also reasons to step back and take a hard look at where plant-based eating is going. In the past, Kennedy writes, it was often counterculture folks who challenged a meat-centered standard American diet. But today, as tech companies and VC firms push plant-based burgers or fund lab-grown meats, she wonders who is steering the future of food. Kennedy's new book is No Meat Required. She joins us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Veganism and vegetarianism in the U.S. have radical counterculture roots, and food writer Alicia Kennedy wants us to remember that, as going meat and dairy-free has gone mainstream, from cashew cheeses available at Target to the rise of Beyond Burgers and Impossible's plant-based meats— Her new book, No Meat Required, The Cultural History and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating, covers the eco-feminists, punk anarchists, and communities of color who challenged the food industry and our cultural norms. And she'd like to see more of that rebellious spirit in the meat-free movement's future. Alicia Kennedy joins me now. Welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you. Talk a little bit about why you have been questioning whether or not the way to reduce meat consumption is to put a lot of energy and attention into making meat substitutes or or growing actual meat in labs.
3: It's actually been shown throughout Of this short culinary history that we have to look at for, let's say, the last 52 years in the US, um, starting with Diet for a Small Planet in 1971. You know, we have this evidence that when the food became vegetable centric and, you know, put the vegetables first, that's when it got really good and that's when people really enjoyed it. And we first have evidence of this, of course, from Green's Restaurant in the Bay Area, uh, opened in the Late '70s, I believe, uh, with Chef Deborah Madison, who was kind of the the person, the chef who put a vegetable first approach on the map, and she did what Joyce Goldstein, who wrote Inside the California Food Revolution. You know, elegant vegetarian food. This wasn't sort of moosewood casseroles and that sort of thing. It was it was fine dining with vegetables at the center of it, and that has really defined the way in which people take vegetarian or vegan food seriously. In ever since she came on the scene, because when you see a restaurant get the big accolades, the big mainstream attention as a vegetarian or vegan space, whether that's Superiority Burger in New York City or Pietramala in Philadelphia, which was just named one. Of Bon Appetit's best new restaurants and is a vegan restaurant. You know, these are spaces where they're they're they have really great relationships with their local farmers. They're doing fermentation in-house. They're doing everything from scratch. They're doing really good food that simply happens to be vegetarian or vegan. And that has really been what's the the main driving force in making plant-based food. Accessible and delicious to a larger crowd. It's not when you kind of put something a fake meat on the on the plate and say enjoy that that doesn't go over as well as a really thoughtfully composed dish of vegetables, grains, legumes.
1: Yeah, we are seeing also some drop off in in folks who want uh, fake meat, burgers, or plant based meats as well. Just recently, Um, but at the same time, I love the fact that you're bringing up examples in California, like greens of people who really put vegetables forward and showed us just how incredibly delicious and fulfilling they could be. And enough, essentially, no right. meat required, as your <laughs> your book suggests. Um, now, these plant-based meats, they are vegetables, they're peas or soy <laughs> uh, to an extent. But, but you're saying that essentially, the process of making these Plant-based burgers is also of concern to you, right?
3: Yeah, because we're talking about energy intensive processes. We're talking about monocultures of whether that's pea or soy. In the case of Impossible Burgers, they are relying on genetically modified soy grown in the United States in order to get that scale up for their their product. And that's how they've been able to be in Burger Kings across the country. And, you know, we are seeing that drop off and it's being blamed on cost. It's being blamed on the cost of living crisis broadly, where, you know, I checked at Hannaford, which is a northeast supermarket market chain. And right now they have Beyond beef for $9.99 a pound. They have Beyond sausage for $8.99 a pound. They have two burgers for $6.09. And so people are finding it a bit more cost effective to buy beef. Of course, the beef and industrial meat processing industry in the United States gets subsidized to a wild extent with billions of dollars in tax money um, in order to stay afloat. And so we're not seeing that same kind of public money going to plant based substitutes. But at the same time, these are very, you know, there's they've been a lucrative product we've seen big meat processing operations such as smithfield or cargill putting some money and backing into alternative the alternative meat space the ultra processed fake meat space uh because there is some writing on the wall of course that that we would want some of the market to be taken over by you know if if your barbecue or your fast food is made with these products then that's per it's better than industrially processed meat. But at the same time, we're not seeing that huge fluctuation or that huge turn away from industrial meat because the subsidies are still keeping it quite artificially low in cost.
1: So what is your response to the argument that, and because this is a point that you make in your book, that meat is still incredibly central. And even as these decades of more availability and popularity of vegan and vegetarian options, even as we have seen that these last couple of decades, meat consumption has actually increased uh, in the US. So there's an argument where, well, we just got to kind of meet people where they are. Meat has been central.
3: And that's true. But the The idea that I think we're trying to get at with plant-based meats or even with lab meats, we have seen two companies been approved in the United States to make lab-based chicken, upside foods and good meat. Uh, What we're, we're seeing is that these products at the scale at which most people are accustomed to consuming meat, whether that's beef or chicken or pork. If we're producing lab or alternative meats at that scale, it's still going to be a problem in terms of energy usage. It's still going to be a problem in terms of, you know, the, agricultural or even just land use scale of that production. And so my my kind of perspective all the time is let's try and talk about what we can do now and what we can do in the future to kind of decentralize meat from the conversation so that yeah. we can you know we can go forward and try and find a a real sustainable way to push our food system in a in a different direction where meat whether it's fake or it's from an animal is is not the central part of, of every meal.
1: Yeah. And, and part of the reason why, well, of course, these types of plant-based meats don't don't reduce necessarily the idea of that centrality, and why you are asking all of us to take a step back. Alicia Kennedy is a food and culture writer and author of the new book No Meat Required. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation with your questions or comments. Have you tried being vegan or vegetarian? Why or why not? How do you feel about the normalization of veganism or the availability of vegan food options in grocery aisles and fast food chains? Does the mainstreaming make you excited? Does it? cause some concern for you? What role do fake meats play in your diet? And we've already gotten some comments. Chris writes, unfortunately, McDonald's discontinued the McPlant. Typical corporate PR stunt. And yes, it would have helped. Uh, Tater on Discord writes, I tried being vegetarian for a couple years, but I could never eat a meal that made me feel full in the way eating real meat could. Plant-based meats are an exciting development, but the taste and texture is still pretty universally bad, in my (laughs) opinion. And Rick writes, I'm glad that places like McDonald's and Starbucks are offering non-meat alternatives. But when it comes to meat products, should those places get their meat from family farms instead of factory farms? These are all comments, I think, that touch on a lot of the things that you just said. Um, Alicia, I want to get back to this idea of the centrality of meat and how it came to be that way, why it continues to be that way. Can you talk a little bit about just culturally, the role that meat has played in our life.
3: Well, meat is something that we've come to be obsessed with because of myriad reasons. There is, like one listener noted, that feeling of satiation that comes from eating a meal with meat in it. There's also the association with affluence and luxury that meat has had throughout history because you know, for many of our ancestors, meat was very difficult to come by. And now, of course, in the United States, it's so strange to go to the grocery store and not find a very, very well-stocked meat section. And so we have really because of that association with luxury with affluence with being well fed we have really latched on to meat as the most important part of our diet. That also extends into the idea of protein as, you know, the most important part of our diet to the detriment often of, you know, fiber, dietary fiber in in our eating habits in the U S. And so it's, it's become central because of that, but also there are myriad culture factors at work too, where, you know, we, we think of meat and the proliferation of cattle across the United States, with cowboys, with virility. You know, when I was Mm. growing up, there was always that commodity checkoff program commercial on TV that said, beef, it's what's for dinner. And the voice was always very gruff and strong and manly. And so (laughs) there is that definite association with we're being taken care of by, you know, this, this kind of industry that provides us the beef that we need to, to keep going and to keep feeling like a very strong nation. And so, uh, you know, beef has always had that kind of cultural connotation of something closely associated with masculinity, with domination, with, you know, this kind of pioneer manifest destiny notions of the United States. And so it's very hard to get detached from that because it is so culturally driven and it is so ingrained in how we think about you know that idea of having a decent meal having a having that that feeling of fullness and that feeling of satisfaction that comes not just you know from the eating of it but from the the kind of cultural ephemeral notion that when you're eating a steak that means that you're doing well
1: yeah and and meat played a big role in your life growing up too right
3: alicia Oh yeah. I was, I ate meat all the time. (laughs) Like any, you know, I grew up on Long Island in Suffolk County. We ate, I had, you know, a lot of Italian American influence in my culinary upbringing, but also of course ate everything. Um, And so, you know, chicken cutlets were a very common dinner. London broil was a common dinner. I loved barbecue chicken. I loved sesame chicken from the Chinese takeout. I loved getting a gyro from the Greek place. So like, and of course, I love chicken fingers because I was a kid. But, you know, these things, uh, and, and so for me, that's really important to discuss very openly because I think that there is a big stigma about who decides to give up meat or give up you know, animal products. And for me, it was like I grew up, you know, eating that standard American diet, um, of course, with a bit of maybe more panache because I grew up in the New York City suburbs. But I, you know, I was able to make this decision because it, it fit in with my life and uh, and with my my ethics. And so I, I it it's important for me to discuss how how that can happen.
1: Yeah. And and we'll talk more about that. Listeners, you can join the conversation by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on our social channels at KQED Forum, calling us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Talk about whether or not you've tried or are vegan or vegetarian and what have been the challenges or or the rewards of choosing that. How do you feel about the normalization of veganism or the mainstreaming of vegan and vegetarian food options in ways that have never been seen before? More after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Alicia Kennedy, who's written a new book called No Meat Required, The Cultural History and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating. She also has a popular food newsletter on Substack called From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation about whether or not you've thought about going vegan or vegetarian or, or whether you already have and why, about how you feel about the availability of food options, maybe some of the fake meat or other sort of substitutes that are being developed as well what you think of those helpful harmful or just something to maybe consider step back and take a closer look at if you want you can also share with us the most delicious plant-based meal or recipe that uh, you ever tried or you ever had. Again, 866-733-6786, the number, the email address, forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord, threads. We're at forum and Michael tweets, I don't see myself becoming vegan or even vegetarian, but I like other countries' cuisine models, like the Chinese cuisine model where meat is more of a garnish or flavor enhancer, with tofu as the protein, or Mexican food where tasty beans supply the protein, but cheese is an important flavor enhancer. You know, Alicia, it's it's true. You, you talk about how we have really centered meat, but the reality is, is that so many cultures, communities around the world. For a long time, meat has not been the center of the plate itself. Um, And uh, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the the movements that you saw in the US that really fueled kind of, I think what you call sort of the weirdness, the counterculture aspects (laughs) of moving towards vegan and vegetarianism.
3: Right. Well, as that listener is saying, that is absolutely correct. There is so much around the world in cuisine where you can find meat not being a central part of the cuisine. And I always suggest to people that when you're trying to introduce meatless meals to folks that you don't try and do, you know, you white US comfort food for them that that where you have to maybe replace chicken with a seitan chicken or or something like that, but you go to something that's naturally plant-based like falafel or, you know, something like that and and make beans and and tacos. And that'll always, uh, it goes back to the Deborah Madison Greens method of using plants as their best selves to to make the case. (laughs) And so, but in the book, I chronicle this history of vegetarian and and veganism in the U S since 1971, since diet for a small planet. And that was, you know, around the same time that we saw Stephen Gaskin move from San Francisco to Summertown, Tennessee with busloads of his acolytes and form the farm commune there, which still exists. And the farm commune focused so much on soy and and nutritional yeast and and things like that. And it was there that there were a lot of the first kind of American experiments in making tempeh, which is an fermented Uh, soybean cake that is from Indonesia. And from there, we we see people like William Shirtliff and Akiko Ayogi who wrote the Book of Tofu uh, and the Book of Tempeh and the Book of Miso and really put these ingredients uh, on the map for a lot of folks in the late 70s. That's also when you have Moosewood Collective opening in upstate New York. Uh, Then we have, yes, Deborah Madison with greens. Um, You know, we have a lot of this, all of this Kind of energy fomenting that grew out of the counterculture anti war movement of the 60s. And so that energy really, and that also uh, kind of dovetailed into eco feminist approaches where there's still a restaurant in. Uh, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, open right now called Bloodroot Collective, which is a eco-feminist, second-wave feminist restaurant that, you know, they put out a lot of cookbooks, a lot of cookbooks that really contain a lot of political essays. They also contain poetry. And the eco-feminist vegetarian perspective comes out of the notion that the ways in which the patriarchy dominated women it was also dominating the earth and it was also dominating animals and animals were being used in and exploited in ways that were very similar to how women were exploited and so uh, there was a lot that came out of that counterculture ecofeminist mo- moment and a lot of the food of that moment that's had the longest legs has really was really deeply you know embedded in these places like the farm like uh, blood root, which still exists. And so these places that really went all in on their politics, all in on their ethics around, you know, trying to tread lightly on the planet with their food, uh, these are the ones that have had kind of the most influence, interestingly. Um, and then, you know, we see that that mantle sort of taken up by the punk movement and anarchists who put out, you know, the hippie core crew came out with Soy Not Oi, which was a really influential zine that came out in the late 80s. Um, that zine culture that really that that uh, continued to flourish in the 1990s. And then in the 2000s, we see that sort of zine culture become a bit more mainstream with folks like Issa Chandra Moskowitz, the author of Vegan with a Vengeance, and Veganomicon becoming really, really popular cookbook authors who who take a lot of their inspiration from that soy not oi moment and have made it really, you know, they've mainstreamed it. They've put it into the homes of, of lots of folks who maybe still eat meat, but like to open up vegan when they have a block of tofu that they don't know what to do with. And so it, it's that influence and those subcultures have really influenced the way in which vegan food has emerged onto the culture now. I think in a lot of ways, it, it's really hard to see unless you're looking for it. But there's so much of that. And it, it, it's very interesting to chronicle how the people who, ha- to use my word, which you just quoted, weird. The the people who have been the most weird about food and about their its connections to their politics have had the most resonance over time in terms of their their cultural influence.
1: Why do you think some of that has been lost? We talked a little bit about where it feels like it's been lost, especially with big companies doing things like um, plant based meats. But why do you think that has been lost? And do you think part of it may have been that to make it more stream, it needed to be downplayed? that history that weirdness
3: i think it just a matter of these companies these ceos saw the profit potential in you know, moving into this space and moving into this space with proteins that could be recognizable to the mainstream American palate, because, you know, we have tofu is in I'm, I'm going to venture a guess that it's in pretty much every major supermarket in the U.S. Uh, there are beans in every major supermarket in the U.S. at Walmart, at Target. And so these are plant proteins that have been widely available and rather cheap for a very long time. Uh, But at the same time, these companies were able to capitalize on the fact that these do take a little bit of more know-how to prepare. They do take a little more time in the case of dried beans to prepare. And they take a little bit more flavoring and that sort of thing to ensure a delicious meal. And so I think they just saw that that way into the market um and they they capitalized on it but at the same time it's it's proving difficult with consumers because of that price differential that 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 they can't seem to get over that hump. And also, yes, there's a lot of people who have tried these, who got excited about them, who maybe are omnivores, who've always wanted to cut back on their meat consumption. But they found out, you know, anecdotally, I've heard of digestion issues that come up when you eat these in the way that you might have become accustomed to eating meat. Um, I've heard of, you know, just people having kind of adverse reactions if they start to rely on these ultra processed food products. And so it's, it's something that, you know, it, it, it really banked on the sense that people were waiting for this and people clearly were waiting for this, but they've just missed the mark in terms of price, in terms of taste, texture, and nutritional value.
1: Yeah. But even outside of, you know, plant-based food companies, I didn't really know this history until I read your book. And, And I'm wondering why, you want to remind us and make sure that we are reminded of it. What are some of the core things that it raised, that it brought up, that these pioneers, you know, brought to the fore that you want to make sure we don't forget or prioritize?
3: I think it's so important to remember that the reason so many people, the reason this kind of secular approach to a plant-based diet was sort of Forged or born uh, into the kind of mainstream American consciousness with Diet for a Small Planet in 1971 was that there is a misuse of resources that the United States benefits from in terms of the availability of meat, but that has had terrible consequences in terms of global hunger and in terms of now climate change. We see so much of, you know, that we, the same thing she said in 1971, that we use 80% of the world's agricultural land to provide 18% of calories uh, because 80% of the land is being used to feed or, or, uh, house livestock, this is still the case. And so I wanted to go back and, and look at, these are the people who've been at this for so long. What did they do that worked? What did they do that didn't work? What can we learn from this so that we aren't going forward into you know this? It's so popular to talk now about the future of food. So when we talk about the future of food, why are we focused so much on something from a lab or a, a highly processed meat substitute when we know that we can grow things like soy like chickpeas we can make tempeh we can make seitan we can eat beans we have a whole history to lean on to take us into the future that is you know focused on culinary diversity and it's focused on biodiversity in terms of crops. And so it for me going about talking about this history is a way of keeping these kind of corporate players from erasing it and saying we have to go we're jumping straight from Uh, meat made from animals in factory farms to meat made in a lab or meat made in some sort of factory. And we don't have to think about what other possibilities there might have been, because for 50 odd years and obviously longer, we have known what the possibilities are. We've been exploring what those possibilities are for plant-based food and how it can have a really good impact on our culture, on our climate, on, you know, culinary possibility. And so I, I for me, it was very much about not allowing the corporate narrative this, to control our imaginations when it comes to the future of food.
1: Yeah. Well, this is writes, I used to work for a company that makes cultured meat, and I agree. The most sustainable and ethical way to eat is for everyone to eat vegetables. One thing that's often missed in this conversation is that the meat-eating and vegetarian debate is portrayed as an all-or-nothing conversation. Reducing, not eliminating meat consumption is the easiest way to live for most people. And and actually, that's something you bridge in your book, Alicia. Uh, Mala writes, I was born and raised vegetarian in India and obviously have never missed meat. I think Americans don't know how to shop for and cook vegetarian food in my more than two decades here. The question I get asked most is, but what do you eat? (laughs) So much. Lentils, beans, veggies, rice, wheat, and spices. Uh, Let me go to caller Jessica in Oakland. Hi, Jessica, you're on.
5: Hi, so I'm a physician in the East Bay, and what I'd like some advice on is um, for my diabetics, how do they eat vegan or vegetarian and maintain a low carb diet, uh, which helps control their sugars as well, you know, as well as get enough protein?
3: Jessica, thanks. Alicia, any thoughts? Well, this is a question for a registered dietitian or a nutritionist and not a food writer, (laughs) but it's also something that I've been thinking about a lot. It's something my readers have been coming to me with. So I think it's, it's really, this is a question that's really in the, in the atmosphere, but you know, in terms of focusing on protein, that's plant-based, that doesn't up that carb consumption so much it's tofu, it's tempeh, it's, it's, the kind of already processed plant proteins are going to have a better impact than the, you know, focusing on, on other carbohydrates.
1: Well, this is no Vegan cheese has gotten a lot better since vegan cheese makers have started using different ingredients and using traditional cheese making methods like Miyoko's creamery. Can you talk a little bit about too, like the growth of vegan cheese, the growth of using nuts and also having to keep an eye on the nut industry? <laughs> oh,
3: <laughs> yeah. So most cashews, uh, I believe the last statistic I have on this is that only 3% of cashews harvested and available are fair trade, which means that there, there is a lot of human rights abuse in the cashew industry in terms of the shelling, because there is a toxin on the shell of the cashew that has to be removed. A lot of the ethical cashew operations are going to use steam to do that. But we have heard of enslaved labor in Southeast Asia to to remove that, that shell, which results in burns on hands of mostly women laborers. And so we do have to be careful about cashews. I know that Miyoko's Creamery when Miyoko Shinner was still in charge of it, was very committed to having an ethical, sustainable cashew operation, providing all of their cashews in Vietnam. I can't speak to what their commitments are now, but it is it is it's interesting because you know, in plant-based food, we start to have the same kinds of problems as we might see it from an over-reliance on eating beef or an over-reliance on eating chicken. Uh, In terms of, you know, human rights abuses and ecological impacts, you know, there's there are coconut brand brands of coconut milk or coconut water where we have evidence of Monkeys being enslaved to pick the coconuts. You know, it's not a perfect, you know, way of eating to just swap out uh, a vegan alternative for you know the meat or dairy because sometimes we have to check on on where these things are coming from, no matter what they are. Um, but the thing is, when we scale up any one thing, when we become overly rel- overly reliant on any one thing, whether that's cashews or whether that's cow milk, there is a detrimental effect, and so that's why also in plant-based foods, it's so. Fascinating Fascinating that we do have a diversity of ingredients available to us in order to not do that, in order to not become overly reliable, relied on one product and one sort of monocrop approach to whether it's plant-based dairy or, or plant-based meats. You know, we have soy, of course, which is, you know, s- grows well in so many places and is just kind of a wonder crop, but we've sort of forgotten. It's gotten out of fashion. Um, you know, we have soy. We have almonds of course almonds have their own water issues but that's something we could keep an eye on potentially um oats oat milk has been huge and oats are wildly sustainable um and so you know it's about approaching these things with that sort of diversity in mind because you know when you eat plant based you have most of the world's resources and ingredients available to you and so it's about what can we do with this diversity this plenitude instead of asking you know well cashews are what's fashionable right now. So all the non-dairy cheese is made with cashews, uh, especially because that also brings up issues for nut allergies.
1: Mm. Do you think one of the ways to avoid the pitfalls of this is to be more regionally minded in our eating?
3: Oh, absolutely! You know there is so much potential in focusing on the the regions, uh, especially in the United States, and and sourcing closer to home. You know it's gotten a bad rap over over the last few years to to talk about food miles or to talk about local food, um, but you know it's it's also has all these other implications too. If you're sourcing if there are nuts that grow near where you are, whether that's maybe hazelnuts in Oregon and, and you rely on them when it's sustainable to rely on them, then that of course takes out the idea that you're, you're getting your cashews from far, far away or your coconuts mm-hmm. from far, far away. Um And so, yeah, eating regionally always will kind of, it, it's not just about the food miles, it's about, you know, getting in tune with that local seasonal food system and getting in tune with what is possible with that regional diversity.
1: Yeah, uh, we're coming up on a break. But do you just want to say a little bit about how moving to Puerto Rico really, you know, brought that home for you? (laughs)
3: Yeah. So moving to Puerto Rico, where, you know, 85 percent of the food that's in supermarkets is imported because this is a tropical island. But it's also not something that was because Puerto Rico doesn't grow things um, before Operation Bootstrap in the 1940s, but which was put in place by the United States. Forty five percent of the workforce was in agricultural land. Um, it used to be that. Puerto Rico was able to grow most of its own food that that folks were eating. And so it, that really showed me and drove home how if you can engineer a food system to be wildly dependent on on various inputs, you can kind of de-engineer it to be dependent on those and, and reinvigorate it.
1: So you actually started having goat cheese instead of like trying to have, you know, a nut-based cheese, for example. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're talking with Alicia Kennedy about how to think of food justice and how to turn to vegan and vegetarian roots for some of the inspiration and ideas for how to do that well, as the future of food moves towards replacing things we've already had for a long time, like meat, for example, um, and whether or not that's really the direction we want to go. We'll have more with her and with you after the break. Seeing lots of calls and comments, we'll get to them right after. So stay with us. This is Forum. Hi, Mita Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the countercultural roots of vegan and vegetarian eating and and how they can inform our food choices as vegan and vegetarian options explode. We're talking with Alicia Kennedy, food and culture writer and author of the book, No Meat Required, the cultural history and culinary future of plant-based eating. And we're talking with you, our listeners at 866-733-6786, on our social channels at KQED Forum, at our email address, forum at kqed.org. The listener writes, I've been vegan for more than 25 years and recently shifted to whole food plant-based. Very happy with my decision. Better for me, better for the animals, better for the environment. Plant-based meats are good for transitions, but the more whole, unprocessed foods we can eat, the better geo on discord writes. Thank you for this conversation. I'm not likely to ever go vegetarian, but I love vegetables and wish restaurants were more vegetable centric. I would probably eat at vegetarian restaurants more if they relied less on fake meat and cheese and more on just good food that happens to have no animal products. Also love from Beth here, Beth tweets. I'm so excited that Alicia Kennedy is on forum this morning. Her new book is excellent. And as a whole foods plant-based family, I am glad to see such an unbiased, well-written book let me go to caller Dan in San Francisco. Dan, you're on.
2: Yeah, hi. Um, so, I mean, I largely agree. I think um, Whole Foods is better for, you know, well, for anyone overall. But that said, for a lot of people who are eating meat and stuck on it, these faux meats are great. Like my stepfather, who will eat an Impossible Burger or Just Egg or stuff like that. And he says it's just as good as he's on Lipitor. So when he's eating that stuff, it's fantastic. So I think, you know, I, I, I mean, I welcome this stuff, even if it's not for me personally, because it's so good for a certain segment of the population. Yeah. And for me, I mean, I've, so I'm also, I've been a, a, a volunteer with the San Francisco Veg Society for a long time. So if people are interested or curious, the World Veg Fest is coming up the 24th annual On Sunday, October 22nd in Golden Gate Park in the County Fair Building, it's a fantastic event because there's there's cooking demos and there's speakers and there's, you know, booths and there's a kid zone and there's music. And so people can check out the whole scene, which is really helpful for people who are curious or people who are deep into it already.
1: Well, Dan, thanks. I don't know if you have a response to what Dan was just saying about, you know, the the benefits that uh, Foam Eats provide.
3: Oh, absolutely. There, there is no doubt in my mind that these products serve a purpose for folks in a transition or, like he was saying, who are, are struggling with cholesterol issues and still want to, you know, eat a burger or enjoy some eggs, uh, whether it be mung bean. Uh, in the Just Egg, but you know, for me, a lot of the problem with these products is one of narrative. It's it's about that that future of food narrative where they are trying to kind of own the space and own the conversation. When I think that we would do a lot better to talk about how we can support biodiversity and and regional food systems in ways that are really good. Uh, ecologically, really good for labor and really good, honestly, for tourism, because agritourism is is a is a big, big industry that that could be really supported by by strengthening regional food systems.
1: Um. On that note, the sister writes, I've been vegetarian for 35 years and was excited to try Impossible Burgers when they came out. I like them, but now I really miss the great house-made vegetarian burgers that I used to enjoy at restaurants. All they do now is plop at Impossible or other mass-produced burger on my plate. <laughs> Not... As fun, yeah. I've sort of gotten rid of the uh, veggie burger to some extent. Another listener writes, Don't bring it about. Quinoa is a complete protein grain for vegetarians who eat cheese and yogurt. Kefir has a complete source of protein through a dairy. Let me go to caller Julia in Fairfield. Hi, Julia, you're on. Hello, hello. Hi, go ahead. Hello, hi. Oh, um i I'm
5: fascinated with the program first of all, and um I wanted I came to plant based eating through my primary care physician in that when I went to have a blood panel done, she said I had high cholesterol, immediately picked up the prescription pad for drugs, and I'm like, no, let's wait. I want to do some research. And I did, and I went plant based completely. And um, so no animal products of any kind. I drop my cholesterol numbers by double digits in six months. And nothing, I mean, like my, my body, my energy level, everything is just like it was before. Um, no weight fluctuations. I love eating plant-based. And one of my favorites is a tofu stir with some... Um, um, red onions, maybe some spinach or kale, and spices, and it's delicious.
1: Mm, Sounds great. I'm so glad it's had such health benefits for you, Julia. You know, I'm curious, Alicia, when a person changes their diet or or makes this shift, does it really make a difference? Does the individual choice (laughs) make a difference?
3: this is the question the all-time big question of course but i i think that you know it's it's something that we think we're doing individually but that has a collective impact that has an impact on the people around you it has an impact on your community if you make this decision and you start to make plant-based meals to bring to a potluck to bring to a holiday if you change people's minds about you know what it it can taste like to eat a vegan cake on a birthday. I think that has big ripple effects for folks in terms of just different understandings. It also, of course, opens up space for conversation about why to make this choice, why it it has an impact on the environment. And, you know, for me, it's always about talking about, you know, industrial animal agriculture in the United States, its outsized impact in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, especially when we're talking about beef or dairy, um, it You know, right now we're seeing a lot of news about child labor laws from companies like, you know, Tyson, where they've been bringing in on, you know, children to work in meat processing in order to keep it going at the rate at which people are consuming and buying meat. And so it, it's it opens up that avenue of conversation for folks that I think is so useful and I think is important for, you know, making making the new the the understanding of why this is a decision that can have important effects ambient it makes it something in the air that people are thinking about more and it you know maybe it influences them when they're going out to buy lunch uh on a wednesday and they say you know what i'm gonna get something that doesn't have meat in it uh because i you know i feel like that that choice is possible. Now it's not, it doesn't seem like an unsatisfying or sad choice, but rather a choice of possibility. Um, and so, yeah, I think it has those ripple effects.
1: Yeah. And, and thanks for understanding that I meant collectively, if it makes a difference collectively, because sure, individually it could have a big impact on it, on your health as it did for the caller. Um, but, uh, well, let me read a couple more comments. Uh, this listener writes Catherine writes, My husband is vegan and I worry about his health. The mock food is just not healthy. The ingredients read like some of the junk food, things we need to Google to even know what they are. I lean us more towards real food to try to combat the issue. The mock is so convenient, though, it is difficult for him to give up totally. Josh writes, I've been a lifelong vegetarian since my hippie parents lived on a commune and grew their own soybeans and made their own tofu. I've remained vegetarian for ecological reasons, but I also have noticed a lot of false attitudes about vegetarianism and veganism, which are pervasive in our culture. I think what limits vegetarian and veganism from becoming more mainstream is a lack of creativity around how to cook and find nutrients from plant-based foods, and and you did talk about that in your book, exactly what Josh was bringing up, but you also talk about some other interesting challenges for people um, and for vegetarianism or veganism in the U.S. I, I mean, I'm struck by the fact that, as you point out, more people are likely to order, you know, a vegetable dish if it is not labeled vegetarian or vegan. W- w- you know, what does that say? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, I think it goes back to the idea that the best advertisement for vegan or vegetarian food is vegetables and and grains and legumes and just whole foods, plant-based, really shows people that... It, because it makes it just enticing food. It doesn't make it a substitute for anything. And when people there are a host of of course cultural issues around making a deliberate vegan or vegetarian choice vegetarianism is coded as feminine in the united states um it's coded as weak of course because of that lack of protein um, or perceived lack of protein and so there there's all these yeah, issues the that come thing. up yeah. when people <laughs> when people might make that decision so if you just take away those little labels or that little leaf that that denotes vegan or vegetarian people feel more free They don't they don't feel like they're taking on a burden or an identity or a challenge. They just feel like they're eating good food. That's that's real and nourishing.
1: Yeah, well, this is not tweets. Often how we talk about veganism is so culturally white American. Most international cultures that consume meat diets manage to maintain without mass factory farming around the world. Meat is considered a luxury and meals revolve around vegetables, legumes. Whole grains. Do you want to talk about that a little bit too? That you know, veganism has suffered from being associated with essentially privilege and whiteness.
3: Absolutely, you know, and it's interesting because there's a lot, a lot of the mainstream conversation around veganism and vegetarianism. And I've repeated it today by saying, you know, the secular moment for vegan and vegetarianism begins in 1971 with <laughs> Francis Moore LePay and Diet for a Small Planet. But you know, there was a, a real connection and movement in the 60s. Um, folks like Dick Gregory, uh, who wrote, you know, a natural diet for people to feel good. I might be mangling the name of that book, but you know, there was a big connection between the civil rights movement in the '60s and vegetarianism and a, and a plant-based way of eating. Um, it was, and it was for many very different reasons from the counterculture, but also a lot of the same reasons about this kind of sense that this American diet connected to an American dream might be false uh it might be a false promise of prosperity and wealth and well-being and so you do see that in the in the 1960s moving into the 70s and then you know we have folks uh you know in the last you know decade like bryant terry who's come out with a lot of great cookbooks mm-hmm. who's based in san francisco mm-hmm. um we had black reek and vegan come out this summer which is a a black puerto rican cookbook uh from a pop up Uh, author in the Bronx. Uh, We had vegan barbecue by Terry Sargent Um, and their vegan Chinese kitchen. We've had uh, the vegan Korean cookbook. So these are all kind of I don't think that these folks are necessarily hitting on anything new. I think that they're tuning into some a a tendency that's always been there, which is, again, a countercultural tendency. And, you know, now have the actual opportunity to bring it to two people and bring it to the market and, and actually enact this diversity that has always existed within plant-based food. Um, and, you know, I, I also write in the book about how, when I was a restaurant critic at the village voice in New York, I, you know, took the five train up to the Bronx, went to vegan's delight and, you know, ate a doll patty, um, at, you know, what was kind of an ITAL bodega. And in the, in the freezer there, they had shrimp that was faux shrimp um, that was made by a Chinese American company. And like, for me, that has always kind of told more of the truth of who is vegan or who eats plant-based and vegetarian in the U S than the more mainstream notions that it's a privileged decision, privileged decision for folks who go to the farmer's market every weekend. Um, but it's actually, you know, it comes from, uh, you know the ital rastafarian tradition of jamaica it comes from buddhist traditions in east asia it comes from so many places in the world that go undersung and underseen when it talk we talk about the culinary world and so we are definitely seeing that reality actually come to the fore now with with this new wave of cookbooks so it's a very exciting time i think for plant-based cookbooks
1: well, let me remind listeners you are listening to forum hi, i'm Mina kim let me go to christine and el cerrito hi christine you're on <laughs> Hi,
6: thank you for this program um, and I'm calling to just my mom when I said that I was going to become a vegetarian thirty five years ago, she cried. she's Mexican, and in Mexico, meat is a huge staple, and it's in everything, lard is in everything. And they consider meat like just red meat, so if you ask for if it has meat, then they'll say, "Oh no, but we have no, we have chicken it's chicken <laughs> it's not meat and um so she said she came back and she said okay if you're going to become a vegetarian you have to go to the library and find out what vegetarians eat because that was before the internet and so I did that and it was fascinating because food is medicine and um Mm -hmm. and learning about that really opened my mind to like how I can eat and I've been a very healthy vegetarian pescatarian for now all these years and um my cholesterol levels are super low except my good cholesterol and um and I feel like when I go get uh, food at like a uh i forget what they're called they're like the little food bars at the at the health food stores, I'm always frustrated because they only have like vegetable meals and then they have you know carnivore meals you know or omnivore meals and um you know and we're always offered like the salad option or the only vegetables mm-hmm. option, and I think that what's what's really missing in our day to day culture is um is full meals that have complete protein and, you know, complete nutrition. Whereas like a lot of uh, omnivores, omnivores eat vegetables, you know, and so vegetables are seen as a side dish that doesn't need any protein, but then um, what, you know, so they can get like one entree and then we have to get like an entree and another thing because, you know, all we, a lot of the misconception about vegetarians is that we only eat vegetables mm. and we, and that's true, but we also eat, we need protein in our vegetables. Yeah. So I think that I'm looking forward to that kind of change um, in our health food stores that we're not being taken into consideration like that. But also I'm looking forward to more people learning how to eat and how to take care of their bodies because we're all born with one. We all need to learn how to take
1: care <laughs> well, of Well, Christine, thank, thanks for sharing, for sharing your journey. And, and I feel like, Alicia, what you're saying is, yes, absolutely. We still have a long way to go and that you are seeing signs that we are getting there. And that maybe if we just really started to remember what a vegetarian diet can be, <laughs> people would consume it, whether they're vegetarian or not.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And and that there's ways of, of being vegetarian. Being vegetarian doesn't look one way, and it doesn't look like one way of eating or one meal that you eat every single day. Being vegetarian... T- can take on any form that you want it to take or need it to take, depending on your cultural needs, your dietary needs, um, and where you live.
1: More broadly, what do you feel like the stakes are, if you want to talk at all about <laughs> that moving forward? I mean, we've touched on it so briefly, but I want to give you a chance as to why you, know, you wrote this, really, ultimately.
3: You know, it's it's just so... I feel like people didn't have the tools to historicize and narrativize the real reasons or that people have given up meat or and why in the future we can learn from them and and cut back on meat whether completely or in or maybe only consuming sustainable or ethical meat um and i i just felt like it, this could be useful for people to learn about this history but also to have a way of discussing it and have a way of discussing you know the diversity of possibility and the diversity of history that's been part of plant-based food in the U.S. in the last 50 or so years. And so I I really wanted that, that to exist, especially because the stakes really are so high in terms of climate change, in terms of the conditions in which factory farmed animals are living. And also, of course, because of the human rights abuses that occur in the meat processing industry, which are now being inflicted on children. And so, you know, this this amount of meat that is consumed in the United States is unsustainable, not just for ecological reasons, not just for animal welfare reasons, but for labor reasons and human reasons. And so I really wanted to make that a very, very clear part of of the argument.
1: Well, Barbara tweets, I'm about to throw my 261st consecutive monthly plant-based dinner party on the 15th. I think of it as delicious activism. Each time I can feed a group of 20 plus people and show them that one needn't sacrifice flavor or eat fake meat or cheese, I consider it a win. This listener also writes, an easy meat substitute, firm tofu, cubed, marinated in soy sauce, vinegar and oil, saute in a pan until liquid evaporates, brown to taste. Alicia Kennedy, thanks for bringing all this out from our
3: listeners and also for your book. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Alicia Kennedy's book is No Meat Required, The Cultural History and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating. My thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
6: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation,